Welcome to Interleaved, where we take a deep dive into topics from the Dafyomi with modern-day sages of the Torah and the world. I'm the Tanozelos Pillay. On this month's episode, Chronicling the Ketubah. There are many marriage contracts that we have from antiquity, and there is sometimes debate, even among ones written in Aramaic, Hebrew, of whether we should call them Ketubah. In many Jews' minds, the word Ketubah might be most associated with the framed piece of artwork found in many Jewish homes. It's a strange and even striking destination on an even stranger journey for the Ketubah, a document that started out as a method of preventing divorce and evolved into something like a cross between a marriage certificate and a prenup. More accurately, though, the Ketubah has had many journeys as it absorbed new language and cultural influences in the diverse lands and cultures in which Jews lived. And today, we have one of the foremost experts on Jewish marriage from antiquity to the present, Professor Michael Satlow, to guide us down the many well-traveled paths of the Ketubah. Professor Michael L. Satlow is the Dorot Professor of Judaic Studies and Religious Studies at Brown University. He specializes in the history of Jews and Judaism in antiquity, but also writes and teaches more broadly. His most recent authored book is How the Bible Became Holy, and has recently edited two volumes, Judaism and the Economy, a source book, and Strength to Strength, Essays in Honor of Shia J.D. Cohn. He is the managing editor for Brown Judaic Studies and has held fellowships from the NEH, ACLS, John Simon Guggenheim Foundation, and the Fulbright Program, among others. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. So today I want to talk about your article, which I know you wrote a while ago, Reconsidering the Rabbinic Tuba Payment, which is relevant to the, the tractate, the Masechet, that Dafiomi is studying right now. Before we get into that, though, I wanted to ask you a more personal question. What drew you to study the topic of Jewish marriage early in your academic career? In general, I've always been interested, intellectually interested, in um, Jewish social history in antiquity. Uh, You know, really trying to understand how Jews lived their lives at the time of the rabbis, rather than how they should lead their lives according to the rabbis. But just just to kind of get into a a different world and to explore that world to the best of our evidence, which is sometimes pretty spare uh, and much of, you know, ancient history does involve some degree of speculation uh, in putting together those scraps of evidence. So it was kind of a fascinating puzzle, but it's also, um, I, I like looking at people, kind of trying to understand people and, and trying to see them not as simple abstractions or representatives of some system, but as humans and kind of how they face the challenges uh, that they had and what we could also learn from that uh, for our own lives. I can definitely relate to to those interests. It's definitely a theme I picked up on in, in your article, which I really enjoyed reading. So just to kind of introduce the article and the sugya before we kind of dive into the details. So you kind of talk about this in the beginning part of your paper. But what do we know about kind of financial arrangements related to marriage from before the Talmud, from the Bible, from the biblical period, from the Second Temple period? Yeah, I mean, in general, so marriage payments are are kind of a whole interesting field in themselves. How it is that um, money transfers at the time of marriage. And this is true not just of ancient societies, but I mean, all kinds of societies. And they have all these different kinds of of ways of putting these things together, kind of dealing with these uh, property transfers. 
often dependent on their own, well, not just ideologies, but a lot of times simply their economic circumstances and what made sense in their particular settings. So you know, we have evidence for a variety of different kinds of marriage payments in antiquity from the biblical period, the Talmudic period, um, you know, I'm kind of moving forward. We don't have a lot of evidence, especially from the Jewish side of what they actually did. Well, I can get back to that in just a second. So in the Bible, the mohar is the, the most common kind of marriage payment. And that's known from other kind of ancient Near Eastern sources as well. And the mohar is a bride price. So it's a payment that is given by a man or his family to his prospective bride's parents, father, really. So that is a kind of dominant marriage payment. And that actually, that still exists in many countries as a, usually in the, the form of the mar. Um, but also, once you start getting into the Second Temple period and the Talmudic period, which is really kind of more Greek influence, um, ultimately, you get a uh, increasing use of the dowry. So a dowry is some sum of money or goods that a bride brings into the marriage. And most people, of course, know that. But what's really maybe, you know, it can be a little more obscure, but is common in uh, a lot of these payments, is that th this money always belongs in some sense to the woman. She never gives that up. She gives up the use of the money often. But at the time when that marriage ends, whether by death of the husband or through divorce, she's owed that money back. That's going to be very important, actually, when we start thinking about the ketubah payment, that, that fact. So it's really those two payments that are most important. I think probably listeners of your podcast are also familiar with the kedushin payment, which is the you know, transfer of some object of value. It could be very tiny and symbolic, or it actually could be quite large from the groom directly to the bride. And that kind of remains her property as well. So these are, you know, they also work together with uh, certain other kinds of financial transfer institutions, for example, inheritance or gifts. So one of the big questions that the, this entire discussion, the ketubah, the dowry, and so on, brings up is how does a family get money to their daughters and when, especially given the fact of ancient Jewish law, which is, was probably also custom, that women don't inherit except under certain circumstances. So that's, you know, kind of a more or less an overview of what we have. Thank you for that. That's really helpful. You kind of go through this a little bit in your article, but can we say with any sense of definitiveness what was going on in the different kind of marriage arrangements that are recorded in scripture in terms of whether there's a dowry or is a bride price or any other kind of, you know, text that we have? Yeah, for the biblical period, we it's really hard <laughs> because, you know, if you don't understand those stories as just reflecting, you know, if they're just, they're true, or whether they're not, you know, but in either case, they probably do reflect certain kinds of payments that some families used that were probably common because we have parallels to them. So this would be the bride price. We certainly have this in, in the Torah, the dowry issues. People are moving in with women move into marriages often with goods. 
although we don't see at the end kind of what happens to those goods generally. Once you get into the early Talmudic period, say, let's say the second century uh, CE, then you do start seeing papyri. And there, the most common form of marriage payments are dowries by far. So that's really what you begin to see. And that, that is as expected. So another kind of, you know, related to this, but, a, you know, a, a more of an overarching point is that the, the article you're referring to, oh, by the way, that was the first thing I published. I had oh, to wow. go back and like think, well, what was I thinking then? But I, I did return to it um, and kind of updated it a, a bit in a book that I wrote called Jewish Marriage in Antiquity. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a different kind of version of that there, slightly different. So ideas are more or less the same. That gets you to this whole point of Jewish marriage. Like, what is Jewish marriage? Is there, or I think the better question, is there anything that's distinctively Jewish about the way Jews marry? And if so, how do you pinpoint that? So one of the things that I've argued there is, is that there's very little that is distinctively Jewish in any core way about marriage among Jews, actual marriage among Jews in antiquity, and that they often Jews married. I think this is true in the common day as well, much like the people, uh, non-Jews in their neighborhoods, in their regions with some tra- other traffics that might you know, identify them as more Jewish. And that's certainly the case in something like marriage payments, which is an economic issue. So with the, the kind of economic circumstances in which Jews live in a region is going to be very similar to the economic circumstances in which non-Jews live in that in the region. And since also there's nothing particularly loaded in terms of uh, issues of Abu Zarah or any of these other issues that divide Jews and non-Jews, Right, that is kind of idolatrous practices or, or not, they tend to be very close, but they also tend to vary by region. So, you know, you'll see different economic marital strategies and strategies of, of economic transfers uh, that also differ among Jews, but are pretty similar to their non-Jewish neighbors. Right. And that's that's very important context for our, for our conversation. So let's dive into the DAF. On 82b, at the end of the eighth chapter of Tractate Ketubot, the Gemara cites a tradition, also found in Tosefta Ketubot 12.1, that purports to explain the historical development of the Ketubah. According to this tradition, at first the sum of the Ketubah payment remained in the husband's property, but this prevented women or it dissuaded women from marrying because they could not be guaranteed that the money would not be wasted or lost. To address this problem, the sages instituted that the sum be kept at the wife's father's house, this made it too easy for men to divorce their wives, as a husband could just tell his wife to collect her ketubah from her father. After an additional solution to place the ketubah in the husband's parents' house failed, the early Tanaitic figure Shimon ben Shetach instituted that the husband guarantee all of his assets towards the payment of the ketubah. So this, as you write in your article, was kind of a key text in um, how past scholarship before your article understood the historical development of the ketubah. And given that kind of context... How would you kind of characterize the approach of past scholarship towards this question of historical development of Ketubah? And if you want to also talk about how maybe that's changed in the time since you wrote this article. Yeah, I, again, I would phrase this in a more general way. So I think that there are a lot of these kinds of traditions in all of rabbinic literature, whether we talk about you know, these talk of note, these institutions, or other kinds of historical claims. And I think uh, past scholarship in general you, used to take a lot of these at face value. 
So if the text says it, then we have little or no reason to doubt it, that this was some kind of historical truth. And that was also sometimes, but not always, tinged with a particular, you know, a stance of sanctity of the text, like what the rabbis lie. So it's like, you know, but coming at it from both ends, from the historical end and also from more of a traditional angle, uh, people were kind of less likely to question historicity of these traditions. We have lots of traditions, for example, quite fabulous traditions and all meaning of that word, of, let's say King Herod, the Hasmoneans, all kinds of, of stories. So are any of them true? So I, over the past, I would probably say uh, 50 years or so, scholarship has generally shifted in terms of how we view those stories. And this isn't just true for rabbinic texts, true for a lot of different ancient texts, uh, especially early Christian texts as well. It's also undergone a, a similar kind of transformation. That stories are stories and that they don't necessarily reflect what we would call history. So that, that's, I think, one general trend that we've seen, just more skepticism about the text and more recognition that the texts have particular agendas. They're written for particular reasons, or the stories are composed for particular reasons, and that you can play fast and loose sometimes with facts, these kinds of ancient histories. Now, there's another factor that also, I think, in the particular case of the Getubah, plays a role, and that is assumptions about the nature of Jewish law or halakha. So, again, in the past, I think that there was a more easy acceptance of the assumption that there was a kind of coherent and well-followed Jewish law or halakha, or that halakha even though we actually, we don't have the term in any document prior to the rabbis, but that halakha was kind of more or less operative, you know, from the, basically from the Torah on. And again, that assumption, I think scholars have also increasingly began to doubt that was there really such a thing as Jewish law prior to the rabbis? Or in fact, do we have, of course, sets of norms, sets of customs, things that many Jews in many different areas probably did do. But whether we can consider it law in any, with all the implications of that, is potentially problematic. So that's the, the, the tradition that you just read shows kind of a threefold, it, it postulates a threefold evolution of Jewish law. Now, right away, again, from kind of a modern scholarly perspective, you look at that and say, well, okay, is that, is anyone forcing that? What does that mean to be law? And second, you know, it's like, it's a little bit hard to, to understand, um, especially in pre-rabbinic times, how it is that rabbinic law could function on the ground. So, again, past scholarship might look at that and they say, okay, well, we accept that there was some kind of notion of uh, normative Jewish law that most Jews followed, and that maybe the precursors of the rabbis, maybe the Pharisees, for example put into play and that, you know, it was, that was also practice. Um, modern approaches and the, the approach that I, you know, kind of drew on here is to treat that with a bit of skepticism and to think about, well, first, is it true? But more importantly, like, why did the rabbis, what are they doing when they tell a story like this? 
Like what facts do they actually have at their disposal? Why are they telling a story like this? How did they put it all together? And how did it play to their audience? Whatever their audience was. I mean, one of the also developments in the study of rabbinic literature has been to increasingly understand rabbinic literature as written by and for a really narrow segment of society, right? Namely, rabbis who were among a kind of a, a literate elite of sorts who didn't have a whole lot of power to impose their will on you know, the majority of Jews, most of whom had no idea who they were. So there too, when you hear a story like this, it's just to, to dig into it a little bit deeper and to try to understand it as a rhetorical device or as a literary unit, uh, rather than as an accurate depiction of, of Jewish law. Yeah, and uh, the rabbis can get quite creative and imaginative with kind of retrojecting their legal system onto, you know, the predecessors. So one of the problems you mentioned in the article um, with kind of studying the history of Iktuba is that it seems that the word Ketubah itself seems to have had different meanings over time. So what, what other meanings has the word had and what other ways has it been used historically before it came to mean this very kind of defined payment? Well, that's right. So it's, it's very important, that terminological distinction, I think. So it, it's a good thing you brought that up. I mean, Ketubah, as it's normally used today, uh, is, of course, a, a written document, which is the root of the word, too. And it takes its name also, or it's the same as the ketubah payment that you just mentioned, which is, you know, in a traditional ketubah, the amount of money that's pledged by a man uh, to give to his wife upon the dissolution of the marriage, or, you know, by, um, if he dies, by his heirs. So it, it defines those things. But ketubah also, in these ancient documents, can and often does mean dowry. So that's really the, the key confusion. So sometimes when you're reading a uh, rabbinic text and it talks about a ketubah as a payment, it can be uh, easily understood as a dowry rather than as this more specialized kind of payment. Mm -hmm. Do you think kind of a ketubah bears like enough similarities to a dowry payment that it could have kind of evolved from that? I don't think so. I, I think that it the ketubah more resembles, although it's different from a mohar payment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in a dowry payment, it's the wife brings the money, the guy holds on to it, he can use it. He, you know, typically, and this is not just in rabbinic law, but other Near Eastern Greek law and stuff, he has what's called the usfrut. He can, you know, invest it. He can actually, you know, if he buys a tree with it, he can eat the fruit from it and use it for himself, really, and, and for the communal good. But actually, it belongs back to the wife. In this case, you know, the ketubah kind of belongs to the wife from the beginning, but she has no access to it. She can't get it. In fact, it doesn't even have to really exist, right? Because it's a payment that his estate or he is supposed to give, but doesn't always have the money in the end, to do it. it, doesn't need it. It's not actually there ever, you know, and because it's moving, you know, from him to her, 
it's a little, it's less, less of a dowry like thing, but you could see, I mean, the similarity, I mean, that is why when the rabbis created that tradition about Shimo ben Shetach, in a sense, that's one of the things they're struggling with, right? They have this ketubah payment that kind of, as, an, as a legal institution that they develop, and in that tradition, they're actually kind of trying to understand what it is, where it came from. So the societies in which they told these stories, they were still using diaries. Story makes it as a continue, like a change, an evolutionary change from dowry to ketubah. But um, the evidence that we have at least shows that at least for most Jews, that was probably not the case. Yeah, and I want to talk about hopefully later just you know the acceptance of the ketubah and perhaps you know how long it took to become kind of widely accepted from the evidence that we have. I know it might be limited. You mentioned before kind of um, material conditions in Pal- Palestine, Babylonia that could have influenced the development of the ketubah. Is there enough information about that to kind of inform our understanding of how it developed? How it developed, no, because again, it's, it's a, I think it is more or less, entirely, but more or less restricted to rabbinic circles. So we can think about how it develops in legal thought and legal institutions from rabbinic literature, no problem with that. But how it develops kind of as a, a working institution as something that people actually do with these payments. I, I'm not sure whether that really helps. Material conditions are actually, they're very interesting when you think about the ketubah because it, these are often, you know, it, there's a statutory amount, a lot of the ketubah. And now here I'm talking about the traditionally written ketubah is um, statutory, it's not necessary, according to the Mishnah. The Mishnah says, even without this written document, you are, in fact, a woman is entitled to all these various things. A man is entitled to some things as well, uh, even if the text, even if the clause is missing. So if you think about the ketubah clause, the ketubah clause is typically, let's say, 200 zoos for a woman who wasn't previously married, the Dula. That 200 zoos, now typically, you know, we have a hard time thinking about the value of money in these days, but... If you think about the, uh, you know, sometimes the, the rough figure that's thrown around is one zoos can support a person for a day at a pretty minimal level, right? So that's kind of a, an ancient poverty line, a zoos a day. 200 zoos, that is two thirds of a year. No good lawyer would get that for their client today. That is far too low. So then you have to wonder, well, what's, what actually is going on here if the statutory amount is really a, a minimal amount of money? So, you know, if you're just talking about just a woman, assume she doesn't have any children to support, is out there with her 200 zoos. She has time to, you know, either run home and get supported, go out into some kind of commercial venture of her own, which would be very hard for a woman at that time or get married again. So it's, it's you know, enough to tide you over very briefly. So then you're asking like, really, what are they thinking? What are they doing? It's, it's definitely not, you know, setting you up for the rest of your life in comfort. Do you have any kind of speculation as to why that is, or that's not kind of something that you're- No, I mean, I think, as I suggested, I think the assumption, their assumption is that she's going to go get married. 
Mm-hmm. Now, that also is a pretty narrow window because another rabbinic source is she can't get married for three months after the death. That's to ensure that she's not carrying a child. And then, you know, she has from then another three months plus to find somebody who's going to support her and get married. This is why, frankly, also one reason why I think that people didn't like this ketubah, that the ketubah payment wasn't actually used, it wasn't utilized. It doesn't, as a marriage payment, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. It's very narrowly tailored. And if you think also about, you know, kind of the, the purposes of marriage payments and how they're negotiated between families, usually, whether or not the groom's family would want to say, well, sure, you know, if, if, we don't mind if she dies, we're going to give up all of this money that we don't even have to set her up forever. Whereas, you know, we get nothing, right? I mean, all the property is, is supposed to be mortgaged to this ketuba payment. That's the, uh, the first, that's what gets paid off first, you know, as a bond. So, Again, raises all kinds of interesting questions about how this would really work in reality. Right. But it sounds like kind of, at least from this tradition that we talked about, it sounds like getting people to get married, getting Jews to get married and stay married was possibly a major motivation? Or is it not possible to say that that much? No, I mean, that's explicit in the text. That Not necessarily that that was explicit in the reason for the ketubah, but that's explicit in the rabbinic explanation for the ketubah. So when rabbis are looking at this institution, at this fact of the ketubah that they got, and they're thinking about what is it? How to come about? What purpose could it serve? They think about, well, marriage and penalties for divorce and, and that kind of thing. And that's how they explain it. Was that really how it began with, with those? Maybe, maybe. We, we really don't know. But not necessarily. And I think looking at the material, you know, conditions, like doesn't really help us to get at those origins, which just re- remain very murky. As you write in your article, the first Mishnah in the fifth chapter on 54b appears to be the earliest indication of the Ketubah payment as we know it now. There, the Mishnah records the opinions of the later Tanaitic sages, Rabbi Huda, Rabbi Meir, and Rabbi ben Azariah about whether the Ketubah payment applies, whether there is a betrothal only, and whether a couple may agree to decrease the amount of the ketubah. What light does this Mishnah shed, if any? So a very tentative question on kind of the chronicity, the, the, the timing of the, the Takana. So it, it says, I mean, if we accept the attributions, which is a whole other scholarly problem these days, but if you accept the attributions, you understand the, um, the traditional dating of when these rabbis lived, then it would put that there was some knowledge among rabbis of a ketubah dating in the Yavnian period. So really the immediate period after the destruction of the temple. So we're talking about, you know, late first century. Uh, that's, that would be the indication there. That's, that's helpful. So I wanted to jump back to a Mishnah in the fourth chapter on 51a, which discusses the rabbinical court's authority to enforce the ketubah payment. Um, the Mishnah and the Gemara suggests there that the Ketubah is not just a marital agreement 
between husband and wife, but also, as you said, a legally enforceable document and a guaranteed or mortgaged financial contract. So in light of that, how is the Ketubah similar to and different from kind of comparable agreements from the ancient Near East? I mean, it points out that the Ketubah, the written Ketubah now, is a prenup. Right. I mean, that's what it is. So in that way, it's enforceable. The rabbis understand it as an enforceable contract. There are many marriage contracts that we have from antiquity. And there is sometimes a debate, even among ones written in Aramaic, Hebrew, of whether we should call them ketubot. Because sometimes the clauses, I mean, some of the clauses are similar, some of the clauses are different. Very few, if any of them, have the clause of what we would call the ketubah payment. They do have dowry clauses. Now, here, you have to think about how this, as a contract, would have actually worked on the ground like any other contract, especially in a place like Roman Palestine, where there are several different operative legal systems. And if you think you don't have to go to a rabbinic court, especially because you don't know who the rabbis are. So you have this document uh, with whatever stipulations, marriage stipulations you have in it. Now, you being the woman here, right? You have this document and something happens to your husband. Maybe your husband divorces you. Maybe he dies. One of those two things. Now you want to collect. Now, the idea here is that your husband or his heirs don't actually fulfill the terms of the contract as you understand it. So now you have to somehow find a court that's going to work through that contract with you in a, some kind of binding way. Usually you and the other party have to agree on an arbitrator of some kind who then is going to look at the contract. They might be familiar with what's customary in the time. There is no written law code to consult and then kind of make a determination over who owes what. And then if they refuse, they have to find enforcement mechanisms. So that is very common, right, for contracts all through the region at this time. There are ways to um, try to enforce a contract other than going to the Roman court system. One of our major sources for these kinds of marriage payments among Jews in the second century of the common era is the Babata archive. And that's the archive uh, from the Bar Kokhba revolt, Bar Kokhba caves. There was a, a woman, Babata, and she actually, she had all of her, she brought her legal file with her when she went and hid in the cave. And then she left it there, probably died in the cave, but we don't know. And that's how we can reconstruct some of these things. But one of the things that she did when she had a dispute uh, was to go straight to the Roman governor of Arabia, you know, and ask him to rule in her favor, you know, over a collection of pots or whatnot, really tiny things. So, you know, you did have a culture where these, these were actually enforceable contracts. Now, of course, you know, whether the Roman governor or his court really saw her, whether they, what they did exactly, uh, it's also, we, we don't really know. I was thinking, let me just kind of put in a modern parallel. I was thinking about that. My daughter was just married a couple of weeks ago. Thank you. And um, yeah, part of it was preparing the ketubah and all of that. 
was, so I was thinking again about Ketubot and stuff. And then you realize, well, the Ketubah today, what is it? I mean, there is a Ketubah payment today, right? They, they sign this, I sign this, I'm on my Ketubah. But that's not enforceable in any way. You can't enforce, even though it's written as a legal document, I think that um, were the you know, situation to develop in a way where my wife wanted to cash in her ketubah for her 200 zoos, right? She couldn't do it. There's no way in to, to bring that to a US court system and have them compel. And if we wanted to go to a rabbinic court system, well, you know, then I would have to agree and then who would really make me and what actually is 200 zoos today because a statutory amount is weird because the value of money changes. I don't think it's a bad parallel. So I think, you know, when we think about these payments or even for antiquity, it, we might really be looking at something in a very similar way than, than we view it today, which is largely symbolic. That's really fascinating. Yeah, to, to see how similar it is. So I think you probably kind of address this question already, but if there's, any, if there's anything you have to add. Um, at the end of the article, you referenced the question of the rabbi's motivation for establishing the ketubah. And I don't want to hold you to this uh, because I know Isti said it was the first article that you wrote, but you said you noted that you would explore it in future work. So I'm wondering in the time since you wrote the article, what you have learned or kind of discovered with respect to that question. I think in the end, I, um, I never came up with an answer to that question exactly. I, I did develop some of the lines of argument in the book, Jewish Marriage and Antiquity. And there, though, I, I really explore more the way this Shimon ben Shetak tradition is different in, as it's reported in, well, the Tosefta, the Yerushalmi, the Palestinian Talmud, and in the Bavli. All those versions are somewhat different. And they're, I think, again, kind of struggling to make sense of this legal institution that I think most people are not, most Jews are not availing themselves of. So in Palestine, for example, I mean, they're still using dowries a lot. You have some use of the uh, Mohar kind of payment in Babylonia, and that just mirrors what non-Jews are doing as well in terms of those payments. And that's well after you know, the purported kind of establishment of the Ketubah? Often a lot of the stuff dealing with, um, with these marriage clauses in particular in the Mishnah, they seem to come out of some kind of common, of some, some usage that already exists. So for a lot of this stuff, I think the rabbis aren't, they're not making it up full cloth, right? But they're drawing on some scribal tradition. Now, this particular scribal tradition of including a ketubah payment, the ketubah payment scribal tradition, and we just don't have any record of it. So they may be drawing on this. It may have come out of popular usage among some small group of people, and then it gets kind of more into the, the rabbinic because it doesn't spread. And in fact, right, I mean, if you want to use the modern parallel, maybe you could say among most Jews, maybe through all of history, it never really spread, except as a symbolic kind of payment or, you know, the, the gesturing toward a payment. Ah, interesting. So as a scholar of Jewish marriage and family life in antiquity, you know, you wrote your book and how has your work on the Ketubah informed your thinking about the institution of Jewish marriage more generally and perhaps vice versa? Well, I'd say, you know, there is 
really no Jewish marriage mm-hmm. that cuts across all times and places. So I think that is really, you know, that was the bigger argument of the book. And you still see it, you know, it is so different uh, in different kinds of traditions. Now, of course, you know, with, with mass media, with all the, the kinds of things we see each other's ceremonies and the way we structure things that there, I think is more, it's become a little bit more homogenous. But still, a Jewish marriage among conservative Jews in the United States, say, is not very similar in its, at least the wedding structures, some of the rituals, I mean, some of the rituals, some are, let's say, a traditional Yemenite marriage, Jewish marriage, right? There could be a, a real a real gap there, but it is, they are legible in the communities in which they're taking place. And focusing a little bit more on the wedding. Um, obviously, some of the rituals are going to be similar, but some aren't going to be as well. You know, and then the structures of marriage, how people actually live as a married couple, how they arrange themselves economically, I, I think is even less dist- that's distinctively Jewish about that. What I like to do this thought experiment with my students, and I do it a little bit in uh, another book I wrote, Creating Judaism, is that if you work with that model, like cultural infusion of traditional or Torah Judaism or whatever. And you just take out all the cultural influence, rip it right out. What is left exactly, right? What is this essential way of Jewish living that is totally uninfluenced by any culture? And of course, you don't, that doesn't exist. You can't have that. What you have in Jewish texts and Jewish practices are sets of resources that are put together and interpreted and always, they're always reinterpreted. The laws may even be the same, but the way they're understood, the way they're they're observed exactly, you know, that is always shifting and that always depends on a larger environment in which they're being realized. Yeah, definitely a, a helpful thought experiment that uh, I probably will be sharing with other people. Professor Michael Satlow, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Between episodes, you can keep up with Interleaved on Facebook and Twitter. If you like what you heard, follow us, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and share this with your friends. Special thanks to our executive producer, Adina Karp. Come back next time for another deep dive.